The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, cut yourself a slice of Lady Gaga hat and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 521 with guests Kent Brown and Ed Pinto, recorded live Wednesday, January 6th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, ENR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who drives way too fast to worry about cholesterol, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks, Carl and Richard. Richard and Carl, however you want to say it, it's fine with us. Yes, sir. What's up, man? I'm still keeping on, keeping on. I got no complaints, though. Looks like it's going to be a crazy spring. Yes, it is. It's going to be a crazy spring. Hey, speaking of spring, let's spring right into Better Know a Framework. Awesome. How's that for a segue? That's the big seg all week. I am the Segway God. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, today I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, one of the classes in Silverlight in system.windows.threading. It's the check access method. Check access is actually a member of every UI element. Really? Yeah. And what you use it for is to check to see that your thread has access to that particular object. Because as we know, UI thread runs on its own thread. Other worker threads do things and they cannot access directly the UI thread. So uh, you basically go to the docs and it gives you a little sample that says if the button dot check access, then you can do your update. You can access the button or whatever it is. And if not, then you use the buttons dispatcher, uh, the begin invoke method, and you pass it a delegate for your UI update code. Cool. And there you go. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. The one thing I want to say is the difference between check access and verify access is that check access returns a Boolean and yes verify no. throws an exception if the calling thread doesn't have access to the dispatcher object. Uh, okay, yeah. So you can push it up to the error stack. So it's a little bit different. Okay. But I, I prefer to check with Booleans and instead of handle exceptions. All right, all right. That's uh, what I prefer. There's merit to both approaches. but I, There I are, there are. Yep. So who's yakking at us? I got us an email. This is an interesting one. Now, let's, let's take a listen. Hi, Carl and Richard. Can I start out, as all your listeners do, by saying your show is nothing short of outstanding, very informative, and all around thoroughly entertaining? Well, thank you. Well, thank you very much. I write to give my two cents worth on show 508, Corey Haynes on software craftsmanship. Oh, I read this email. This is a good one. Yeah. I've been a software developer for 12 years, starting out with Perl, followed by VB6 slash com slash ASP and .NET since 2001, and have worked on large-scale enterprise apps during this time with a few blue chips like British Airways, Microsoft, Merrill Lynch, Shell, and Hewlett-Packard. 
While I agree with Corey that there are many cases where students come out of college and university and expect to know more than they actually do, I find that especially in the corporate world as a .NET developer, not having a degree in computing science is to my detriment, even though I graduated 15 years ago, which is ancient history, and have 12 years of software development experience. I find that computer science graduates are more highly regarded over non-computer science graduates in the corporate world, Mm -hmm. for example, banks, insurance, and retail, but less so in startups, new media companies, etc. Perhaps this is more pronounced recently because of the worldwide recession, where a client has his pick of a bunch, so to speak. Keep up the great work, Phil, from London. Cool. When I read this, my thought was, you know, the degree really matters after you've got some experience. I think the degree by itself isn't valued much. It's only after you've proven your chops as a developer, you know, comparing two developers with 10 years of experience, you'll always take the one with a degree. Well, it's because people, you know, companies are always looking for immediate results and they see those results and they say, okay, you might be pretty smart. Let's have a conversation. (laughs) Yeah. What else do you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the real thing is that often it you know we reach a point we you've got to prove your basic chops and after that then there's some some credit to sort of things. But I've met, I've met a lot of folks where after they got to a certain level of experience, they went back and and went after degree, although often not a comp sci degree, often an MBA. Yeah, because they did want to sort of up their skills and think at a higher level and 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 increase their credibility. But it's an interesting problem, and I honestly felt I wonder. I bet you didn't think this way when you started out. Maybe you didn't not have that experience where you started out. It's only now that you reach a certain level of experience where the degree sort of comes into play. Yeah, probably right. But either way, I'm going to send you a mug. And if you'd like a mug, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.com. And if you haven't yet, vote for my band, Defraggers, uh, at uh, shrinkster.com slash 1ccc. The uh, theme song for Foxwoods Casino is at stake. And we think we did a good version. So check it out. It's only a couple minutes long anyway, so it won't take you long. And uh, give us a thumbs up. Calling all .NET Rocks listeners. This is war. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for voting. Our guests today are Kent Brown and Ed Pinto. Kent is a product manager in developer platform marketing. He spent 20 years in software development and consulting, mostly on middle tier and integration technologies. Kent's published a number of technical articles, spoken at technical conferences, and founded two developer user groups in the New York City area. Kent joined Microsoft in 2008 and is the technical product manager for Windows Communication Foundation. Ed Pinto works on the team that brings you WF and WCF. He has worked at Microsoft on these technologies since 2005. In his former life, Ed did a lot of consulting work. When not working, he loves hanging out with his family, running, and hockey. And are you Canadian, Ed? I certainly am, man. Well, that explains the hockey thing. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, tonight we get to watch, uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday, and uh, so this will be published a month later, but we already know Canada's going to clobber the juniors tonight. Oh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a beating. (laughs) And who are they clobbering? The United States. Uh, The grand old US of A. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, you love that, don't you? This will be the sixth year in a row. <laughs> well, um, let's uh, let's start for the completely uninitiated at uh, a, a description of WCF for those who have been hanging out on the sidelines and maybe not paying that much attention. If you're still happily living in a .NET 2.0 world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so WCF is uh, a framework for sending messages between services and clients. It's the part of the .NET framework that you use to write message-based apps. So it's remoting. Ooh, no, that hurts. I'm just it's baiting It's not here. remoting. Um, remoting had a, a few um, unfortunate couplings, assumptions that... Um, were assumed to be shared between client and server that Mm -hmm. uh, made the development of loosely coupled systems challenging. Um, In WCF, we focus more, much more, um, I'd say exclusively on um, um, contracts contracts based on a a wire protocol. All the wire artifacts Mm. are the thing that we focus on in terms of um, messaging and message exchanges. 
Well, we used to just call this web services, and that was fine. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well. Uh. Good. Kent. <laughs> you want to take the? <laughs> oh, come on! You guys don't have to answer that. He's just being a wise ass. I. I well, I, I am, but I think it's important to sort of bring the. I mean, I'm deliberately baiting, without a doubt. But we we've created this big name around something that I think is is we thought was fairly simple things and and is an impression that WCF is far more intimidating than I think it really is. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, one of the things that WCF does is before it even gets to web services, it tries to unify some of these older technologies with Complus and MTS transactions, queuing, uh similar things to remoting, similar in a way config model, but as as Ed said, better decoupled. Um and then it you know, it was very much produced right in the middle of, of the web services evolving and has strong support for web services. Um, so because there's so many things that it solves and there's so many options, obviously in distributed programming, you have a lot of complex options. So it, to, to handle every feature of WCF definitely takes an experienced person. Mm. Um, but I, I think actually to do some of the simpler things that people are doing with, for example, ASMX, simpler web services, it really isn't that hard to learn. And I've seen terms of the programming model developers learn very quickly and you know take to the programming model very easily it's it's when you start config and you know handling all these other complex options where where it gets harder and we'll talk right. about some improvements in that area and i've often i've looked seen wcf do this really well where the basic stuff is simple to do and then when you need to go deep, you can. It's not like you're hamstrung. Like, I mean, I'm, I tease about remoting, but remoting was really great for the few things that it did. Mm. As soon as you needed to go outside of the enterprise or anything like that, it was horrible. And there's also the yeah. there's also the question of well, not just how do I configure, but what do I configure, which is a matter of design and architecture. You got to know that before you got before you know which you know switches to pull. That's right. Yeah. So and on the configuration side, um, you know, the coding looks very, very clean in WCF. It's you basically take any class and you decorate it with some attributes and bada bing, bada boom, you're a service. And that code doesn't really change, to, you know, depending on all the other stuff that happens. It's all really about the configuration, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, I mean, that's another kind of core principle of, of WCF is it's built in a, this declarative way. So w- whether it's putting attributes on, on interfaces or putting these options, these complex options into config, that protects your investment of your code should change very little. You don't really have to write code to support these complex scenarios. Uh, but as you say, I mean, that's, it's all pretty much controlled in XML files, which are very, it's very flexible and easy to deploy, but mm. Staring at XML files on top of having to understand everything can sometimes be overwhelming when you're first getting into it. Right. Okay. So let's assume that uh, we know what a WCF is from this point forward. And if you're still confused, there's lots of great stuff out there for you. I'm sorry. Just one more point, if I could, is that WCF really is our main investment going forward. And it has been, but it continue to be for hmm. distributed programming, for service-oriented programming. So right. you know, things like ASMX really aren't being invested at this point. And they, for simpler cases, they can work well. But right. Um, that. Yeah, it's not an alternate. Uh, it is the future. That's right. So what are the, what are the biggest new features of uh, WCF and .NET 4.0? So I, I think the first thing to, to say is that it's, it's really, you know, evolution of a stable platform. Um, there aren't breaking changes here. Unlike, uh, for example, in Windows Workflow, we have some pretty significant changes, and those have a lot of advantages, but you know, there are big changes. And in WCF, it's really anything that you have now is going to run, plus we have some new features to take advantage of. Um, so the, the, the big features would really fall into two buckets, kind of obvious. Some are really just tweaks and enhancements, improvements to existing scenarios that WCF supports, and then uh, then uh, some new features to support some new scenarios. So in terms of, I'll just list off, and then we can, you know, drill into the, because each of them has a lot of, a lot to drill into. But, um in terms of uh, the existing enhancements to the existing scenarios, we just talked about configuration. So that's a big area we focused on is simplifying configuration, both for the sort of out-of-the-box, just hit F5 when I write a simple service, and it should just work and not overwhelm me as a beginner, plus as we start deploying these into production, just making it, it easier to, to support those scenarios. So that's simplified configuration. Uh, the second would be improved monitoring. Again, you need that in production as you're debugging or you're just trying to see what's going on in production. Uh, thirdly would be 
improved uh, WF star interop. So that's been a foundation of WCF from the start, and we've continued to make progress in working with our other partner vendors to make sure the WF star interop is, is at the level that people need. And then finally would be uh, improved support for REST. So we started, introduced support for REST in 3.5 and really got it a little better in, in SP1. Um, we've added some, uh, we've, made, we've made some more progress in .NET 4, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So those are the really the kind of improvements to existing scenarios. Then in terms of new features, it's really to support building and managing sort of large multi-node, loosely coupled applications. So, I mean, in those situations, you want to try to decouple as much as possible. For example, you know, what's the, the IP address or the URL that you're talking to? And so we, uh, the, the big uh, new things there is the routing service and discovery. Okay. Do you want to drill into uh, these things? Yeah. Okay. The routing service. Uh, you want to talk about the routing service first? I got to dig into the new features first. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we kind of looked at um, the, some code that customers were writing quite frequently for that essentially took messages from an inbound channel and sent them to an outbound channel. It was really just this this message pump service that they built. Mm -hmm. um, and they were building this for uh, a variety of reasons. They were trying to um, do basic message routing where they wanted to present some kind of stable interface or stable address to the client and, um, and route to some less stable addresses um, in the back uh, in the back end, they would use it for protocol bridging. Maybe they wanted to listen on HTTP and send on on TCP to the to the back end services. Um, sometimes they were collecting a bunch of services together and and providing some kind of aggregate contract. Um, you know, in this in this message pump thing, um, all kinds of scenarios. Um, the one kind of common element. Uh, uh, across all of those scenarios is that um, they they were decoupling the sender from the receiver by breaking up the direct exchange of messages, right, be between the client and the back-end service. Um, and doing that is has a bunch of issues, right? Uh, um, it's not a totally transparent thing. There's questions about state management. There's questions about security. There's questions about what to do when um, you've got uh, delivery failure, transactions, all kinds of stuff. And so what we did was we built this routing service thing, which is this um, um, message pump that encapsulates a lot of those concerns um, in an easy-to-use service that allows you to develop um, these loosely coupled apps in these in the scenarios that I just mentioned, like basic re routing, protocol bridging, aggregation, and so on. So how how would you implement it? The way that you'd use it, um, well, it's a general uh, purpose service. So you you use it just like any other WCF service. You throw it in a service host, right? Um, um, given that it's a, a general purpose service, it's got a bunch of uh, message based contracts. Um, that you would expose, like you've got to expose an endpoint, just like you would for any WCF service. Um, and the routing service implements these message-based contracts that reflect the common message exchange patterns that WCF supports. Um, and uh, 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 so you expose this contract on uh, um, on the uh, the routing service endpoint that the client is going to be accessing. And then you configure this thing called um, a, the, essentially the brains of the, of the routing service, this, uh, message filter table, uh, which is just this routing table that, um, allows you to associate message filters with client endpoints that are pointing at your, your backend services. Um, so, uh, uh, a message filter for those that, um, uh, haven't fooled around with, uh, message filter technology of 3.0, um, is essentially just this, um, thing that we shipped in 3.0 for examining a message and determining whether it satisfies a particular condition. Um, uh, so, for example, um, we wrote, uh, I think, an action message filter and an address uh, message filter, and you could, you know, uh, uh, throw throw in an expression on one of these things like um, uh, action equals HTTP colon whack whack dot net rocks whack echo 
Um, and, uh, and if you had a message that uh, you passed to this message filter and it had that action, then you'd get a match. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so imagine having a table of those, right? Um, and you've got this message coming in and you've got, uh, um, you know, one that goes to Echo and one that goes to some other service, some get current time service, right? And um, um, associated with those filters in that table is a bunch of client endpoints. It sounds a lot like BizTalk. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Interesting. So this is definitely not BizTalk. Um, BizTalk is a product that you license and can configure. Um, it's got a, um, a, a very rich um, set of connectivity solutions, hundreds of adapters, um, a durable pub-sub system, um, and you can configure this product in um, uh, uh, in almost a turnkey kind of way. It's got a yeah. bunch of tooling around it. This um, talk is a big application that does a lot of what you, this um, the routing service seems to do at a lower level. I guess you could maybe build BizTalk if you were so inclined. With <laughs> if with you were so inclined, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think the uh, buy versus build. No, no, no. I, I'm just trying thing. to. I'm just trying to get a clear <laughs> yeah, idea no, I, of BizTalk. Big application with lots of features. High yeah. level. Uh, this is a framework thing. This is, a this framework. is something that you host. You, yeah. You're going to write code in order to use this. Um, service in in kind of one of those uh, scenarios that I was talking about message routing or protocol bridging or or um, there are some, there are security scenarios there might be even just basic um, failover routing scenarios we can talk about some of those if sure, you like um, sure. um, but but the thing that I was describing was essentially this table of filters to endpoints mm -hmm. um, and and uh, and so you set up the, the routing service endpoint, you set up this table, um, and as messages come in, they're matched against this table and the uh, endpoints that match. Um, that's those are the that, that's the endpoint that is used for sending a message to the back end service. And there's just one one little quirk I'll I'll mention in in the request reply scenarios. Of course, um, uh, the uh, the routing service is, is um, maintaining that. Um, um, request state, and uh, so you can only and you can only have one um, uh, end client endpoint matching for the back end service. Um, uh, in one way scenarios, uh, the routing service supports um, uh, multicast uh, message exchange, so you can actually cool. have yeah, you can actually have multiple filters match. Um, in that filter table I was describing, mm -hmm. and it'll spray those messages to uh, to all those those backend services. Nice. So that's kind of a just a quick snapshot of what the routing service does and and kind of how you use it. Um, that sounds very powerful. And uh, it is. yeah, and at a at a nice low configurable level too. Uh, discovery. Discovery. Let's talk cool. about discovery. So, so discovery uh, just kind of uh, in a summary description is uh, the ability to publish a service's um, endpoint metadata or to discover services using some uh, well-defined criteria. It's useful in all kinds of contexts. Um, uh, you can, at design time, you can just go and discover uh, um, services that you want to consume. Um, and uh, like, for instance, in... Um, in you know VS 2010, we use Discovery to go and look for uh, services available. Um, in uh, and of course, there's a, all kinds of runtime uh, um, applications. Uh, you can use Discovery to reduce the config burden on your on your clients. Instead of um, specifying a particular address on your clients, you can use Discovery to to dynamically discover. Um, where your services are at. There are all kinds of scenarios that, that require location agility. Um, so, for instance, um, uh, you've got a projector in, in, in some conference room. You walk into that room and your, you, your uh, laptop discovers the, the device there and, and starts sending messages 
Um, um, and even enterprise uh, apps are, are starting to be written that um, they're, they're dynamic. They respond to the availability of different services um, on the network. So when you, when you think about kind of one of the, the most basic, you know, shared dependencies um, between a, a service and a consumer, it's the location, right? Where the, where right. service is listening for messages. And the interesting thing that discovery does is it, is it moves that dependency from being a design time thing to being a runtime thing. And, uh, it, it accomplishes that by having the client and the service take a dependency on this interop protocol named WS discovery. Um, this is a, this is an Oasis standard protocol. Um, where clients can um, probe a network using certain criteria, like I was just talking about earlier, um, and um, and services can send messages to the network about um, uh, their availability. So uh, WCF and 4.0 uh, has a complete implementation of this standard, WS uh, Discovery, um, and uh, it composes with all the existing concepts. It's extensible. It's easy to use. So is discovery automatic or or is it uh programmed how ex- what are the what are the different ways you can use this So discovery there's a couple of modes um in which discovery can work uh in managed mode you've got this central service on the network that facilitates discovery um and messages are delivered uh unicast to uh this uh discovery service um, so you can think of it kind of like having a directory service, right? Uh, uh, where you go and you, you, you look up where services are, are at. And then there's this other mode, this ad hoc discovery mode, um, which has no central service. Messages are sent multicast. So it's kind of like a PA system, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're just kind of paging and everybody hears your page, you know, is, is, .NET Rocks service available and everybody in the airport hears, hears it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so uh, in the in the ad hoc mode, you can imagine um, some app coming up and uh, say, saying, you know, announcing its presence on the network, saying hello and and uh, you know, broadcasting, multicasting this hello message with information about the the services it supports and the and the, the endpoint references um and then you can imagine that it this app wants to let's say it's a chat app and it wants to go and um discover all the other chat apps that are on the network and so it sends out this probe message uh, again this multicast thing and any other apps on the network that match that um the criteria in that probe message are going to send probe matches back to the to the probing app, and then mm-hmm. it's got all the information about the available services on the network. Um, and then when, let's say this app goes off the network, goes offline, it's gonna send this buy message again with information about the the, the uh, contracts it supports and, mm-hmm. and where where it was when it went off offline. Cool. That's the ad hoc kind of mode, and you can, you can guess by the way that I'm talking about it that it's um, um, kind of chatty, right? Yeah, it sounds it. And then in contrast, you've got this managed discovery mode um, uh, where you've got this centralized service. We call it a discovery proxy. And um, um, you can have apps that are configured for hitting this discovery proxy to, to with their announcements and with their probes um, to, to find out uh, from this central source where um, um, services are and what services are available. Um, and uh, discovery proxies can also surface uh, existing repositories of service information, such as, let's say you've got a database full of um, uh, service uh, uh, metadata. Well, the discovery proxy is this, you know, Oasis standard protocol way of fronting that uh, repository. UDDI is another example um, where you can put like a discovery proxy in front of a UDDI repository in order to expose the service metadata that's in that repository about uh, services that are available on the network. Hmm, cool. 
Okay. And you've brought up the term multicast a couple of times here. Are you Mm. actually talking about IP multicast? Yeah, using UDP. Right. Okay. Just multicasting to a a multicast address um, is is one of the basic, most common um, uh, um, ways to do discovery in the local subnet. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the new TFS Work Item Manager and TFS Project Dashboard. So if you're spending a lot of time on organizing the cluttered pile of work items in TFS, get ready for a fresh and intuitive experience. The guys at Telerik just launched the TFS Work Item Manager and Project Dashboard, a couple of free tools designed to make working with Team Foundation Server faster and easier. Unlike the standard TFS Explorer, the Work Item Manager lets you take advantage of powerful capabilities like filtering, as-you-type search, grouping and aggregation, and iteration scheduling. You can even see all the work items in a Scrum dashboard view, as if watching the whiteboard in your own room. Project Dashboard is a unique tool for visualizing TFS data. Useful for both developers and project managers, it helps you keep track of the latest TFS project activity like current iteration progress, build history, recent check-ins, assigned tasks and bug history, and to understand the health of the project as a whole. The TFS tools are brought to you by Telerik and Imaginet, the experts in application lifecycle management. Built with RAD controls for WPF, they're both amazingly flexible and responsive. Go to Telerik.com and download the TFS tools for free. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I haven't really thought about multicast in a long time. I'm not sure why. Maybe I don't use it all that much. But I did look into it once, and it and, and it does work. I remember when I was getting into it, the routers of the day were, some of them were multicast, handling multicast, and some weren't. I guess now in 2010, any any router that's working uh, is probably going to support it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it's not already yeah. on a pile I, of garbage somewhere. It, 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 well, the thing is, right, though, that, I, I mean, multicast, it's not a reliable uh, um, transport, yeah. but by design, these these protocols are, are uh, resilient uh, um, to being able to, again, uh, dynamically discover um, uh, what services are on the network. And, mm. um, and it's, it's, you know, these aren't, these messages, these hello and buy and probe messages and so on. It's not the end of the world if you drop one, right? Right. It's not like your, your uh, submit order worth a million dollars message, <laughs> right? Well, and I also think it's not something you're, you're firing out over the internet, that it's within right. your network. Uh, well, good. Uh, so uh, discovery can definitely be used uh, over the internet. Sure. Um, um, you'll, you'll probably have more success with using it in managed mode. Um, uh, but to be clear, y- you can also use other, uh, multicast protocols like, uh, peer-based protocols, um, um, over the, over the internet, um, and, and use discovery. And those things have, have a pretty broad reach. You know, that said, like I was mentioning earlier, though, it's still pretty chatty. Sure. Yeah. No, it makes, it makes sense to me. The really cool thing about discovery is, how incredibly simple it is to um, to use and to get going. To make a service discoverable, um, you just add the service discovery behavior and then um, like the UDP discovery endpoint. And um, when you open this thing up, it's ready and listening. It's got a full implementation of WS discovery and it's ready and listening for you know probe messages hmm. that, that come in. And if any any probes come in. Um, with criteria for contracts uh, exposed by the application and endpoints of that service, it's going to send probe matches back. And then on the client side, this is my this is my favorite API in in uh, in Foro. The the dynamic endpoint um, is uh, essentially the constructor of the, this uh, this class called dynamic endpoint tells the whole discovery story. Um, um, it takes the contract that um, you want to expose um, or use as a client, I should say, and it takes the binding. So typically, right, a, a, an endpoint is made up of 
um, a contract, a binding, and an address in WCF. Um, um, but this dynamic endpoint thing, it takes a contract and it takes a binding and that's it. Okay. Right? And so then you stick one of these endpoints on a client and you just start using this client. You can just start making calls on this thing. Yeah, and it under just the works. hood under the hood, what's happening, right, is the um the discovery protocol is being used to go and probe the network for uh, uh to find the service at whatever location it may be, right? And then it'll wire that up as the endpoint address for the client that you're using. And you can start making calls on that thing right away. So what that means is you don't, if you change the location of your service, like if you take a service down and bring another instance of it up or something mm -hmm. like that at a different location, you no longer have to go and change all, you know, 100 or 1,000 client configs, right? Nice. Because you've decoupled that client, um, that shared dependency between the client and the service, that address, which is pretty powerful. And this sounds to me almost like we're we're able to build these sort of service farms that you don't you're not specific about any of these endpoints. You can find other ones, you can fail over to others. Is that really the sort of goal here that we have redundancy built in? Uh, it, you can definitely use discovery to facilitate redundancy. Um, one of the things that uh, one of the demos that we have is this self healing client. Um, uh, we haven't talked about announcements yet uh, right. uh, in in great detail i mentioned some hello and bye messages yeah uh, um the 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 flip side um of of the of the probes is is the uh you know proactive uh, announcements that a uh, a service makes when it comes online and goes offline again really easy to configure you uh add the uh, essentially an announcement endpoint to the service discovery behavior um and then the service that you're hosting is going to when you when you open it it's going to send a hello message and when you close it it's going to send a bye message well you can uh, the client right can use this thing called um a, a, an announcement service right because it's listening for these messages and um, it's that announcement service is going to throw off some online offline events and you can write these resilient clients, these, these clients that essentially, um, handle changes in the network when services come and go. So kind of like what you were saying, right? You can build these resilient clients sure. so that when the service I was using goes offline, I can go and discover another one. Well, and it, you know, in the old days, I've built systems like this where as load went up, we needed to throw more servers in as quickly as we could. And we had imaging gear and so forth to build the machine quickly. But in the end, you had to go to the load balancer and say, here's another server for to use. And here's another server for to use and so forth. And this feels like it's more automatic that it just as I brought that machine in and it sort of set out to the world, Hey, I'm here. Or it would take, it would take on some load. Yeah, you can definitely. Uh, um, so, so one of the things that we're not, you know, diving into deep detail here is the um, the nature of the criteria by which discovery uh, um, matches are, are being performed. Right. And um, um, you know, as with uh, much of uh, WCF, there's there are some key extensibility points within the discovery implementation where you're able to determine how those matches are actually performed. You're able to extend the way in which um, that criteria is defined, and you could you could definitely um, um, facilitate uh, uh, the discovery of newly available services um, in that in that context. You could use discovery um, um, in that scenario. It, it, right. it would take a little work, though. Yeah, I've also done the same sort of trick with queues where you've got a bunch of machines pushing stuff onto a queue, and then you've got a bunch of machines behind the queue essentially popping stuff off. And as the queue gets to a certain size, you spin up more machines to consume that queue more quickly. Yep. Get, this still is very manual, and there's certain points of contact and really some, some significant choke points in that and it just seems like this is a very much more peer-to-peer -peer model where you're spinning up services as you need to and they're negotiating with each other yeah no it's totally feasible it's a very it's interesting because it, you know i don't think of wcf this way i really don't that it would that you'd get into this whole side of discovery and routing and so forth that all working together to make a, a resilient system uh let's get back if we can 
for a minute to the improvements that you mentioned at the beginning of the of the show. In uh, the first one on the list, I believe, is uh, simplified configuration, and that um, that rings a bell with me. What uh, what can we look forward to in terms of simple configuration? So, like we were talking about at the top of the show, one of the one of the um, bigger impediments that we had with um, uh, people walking up to WCF was the, uh, the config story. And um, uh, some of that came from the amount of stuff that you had to express in config. Uh, we, you know, there was a certain level of over specification um, in config, and also the the WCF config system um, was pretty flat. Uh, you know, unlike our the the um, our ASP.NET cousin. Um, mm-hmm. which has a nice, you know, well-established model for config inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in 4.0, uh, we've addressed some of those shortcomings um, with uh, 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 the introduction of default endpoints, default bindings, and uh, default behaviors. So convention over configuration, I guess, is, is in play here. <laughs> Better defaults. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. We we favor convention over uh, uh, configuration. So, for example, um, with respect to endpoint configuration, we formalize the convention where we can generate default endpoints uh, for you if you haven't specified any. Mm. Um, the way that we do that, it was it, we, there's this. Uh, table, it's configurable, um, but there's this, this table called a, a protocol mapping that essentially um, um, maps the scheme of a base address to a, um, a binding that's to be used. So if you have, um, uh, uh, let's say, if you're hosting a service in IIS, right? Well, the base address of that service is going to be um, the uh, location of the SVC file in the virtual directory, and it's going to have HTTP as its scheme. Um, and so by default, the protocol mapping table has basic HTTP binding as um, uh, as the binding to be used for uh, the HTTP scheme. And so if you don't have any uh, endpoints configured, right? Uh, what we'll do uh, automatically is we will generate default endpoints for each contract exposed on uh, that service using basic HTTP binding. Okay. So you really get that kind of experience that you would have with Azimex where you write some code and hit F5 and you're able to connect to it. It just works. Yep. Yeah, it just it just works. That's exactly right. In fact, um, uh, you don't even need a config file, right? Uh, um, the 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 high the high dramatic point of of uh, the talk at PDC was the deletion of the config file. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. That was a was great <laughs> moment. Scintillating. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, <laughs> so, so okay. Um, well, previously, essentially, when you wanted to create a common configuration for a binding, let's say that, um, uh, um, you, well, you had to give that binding a name, and then you had to actually specify that binding configuration in your endpoint. Um, but uh, uh, the fact that you had to be explicit about it meant that all kinds of mistakes were easy to make, misspellings, and um, and uh, or even just forgetting uh, to specify the binding config. And, and so now we've introduced default bindings where you can essentially have an unnamed binding configuration at, uh, um, you know, higher up in the config hierarchy. And, and that becomes the default binding, um, anytime that binding is used, um, uh, lower down in the, con- in the, in the config hierarchy and no binding configuration is specified. Mm. So let's say, for instance, I wanted to, to set my max buffer size and max receive message size. Mm. Um, I could do that at my root, right? My root, um, you know, uh, nice. uh, of my, of my site. Like a machine and config. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, you could do it in, in, um, in web config. 
if if you wanted. And uh, and under basic HTTP binding, you give this binding an empty name, and then anywhere the basic HTTP binding is used, right, it's going to have the max buffer size and max receive message size that you set. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, the last thing that we did was this uh, default behaviors um, uh, thing. And like I was saying before, um, the, the ASP.NET style of config inheritance really resonates well with folks. And so um, uh, in, in 4.0, we do this behavior merging um, that kind of that matches the what you'd expect if you're used to the ASP.NET config. So, so if a we'll merge all the behaviors in a given behavior configuration with the same name um, up and down the the um, the config hierarchy. So you can use all the same stuff that you'd use, typically use in ASP.NET, like lower levels um, in the directory structure. You can you, you can add behaviors to a particular configuration. Um, you can use the remove tag to remove specific behaviors at a given level. You can mm. use the clear tag and, wow. and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, so if you want to turn on metadata for all your services on the box, you can just do that once. That's awesome. Um, Again, at the root, and then, um, um, and it's, and also we do this default uh, um, thing as well, right? So, so if you have an unnamed behavior configuration, um, and you don't specify a behavior configuration for a service or an endpoint, then we'll pick up that unnamed configuration for um, the given service or endpoint. Nice. So, like I was saying, yeah, you can set the the metadata. Um, um, at some higher level, like at the root, and then that'll get picked up by all the services um, um, with matching or absent configuration. It's kind of a nice little cascading inheritable configuration model, as you said, like ASP.NET. That's beautiful and and you know well received. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Glad you like it. Uh, you mentioned in, that there was improvements in monitoring as well, which is one of my favorite things. Uh, maybe you dig into it a little more. Yeah. So in um, in four o, well, let me back up. Whenever you're putting an app into production, it's important to know uh, how it's doing, right? Yeah. Uh, what are the instrumentation it, points? Yeah, and and in you know in three o three five. We gave you perf counters, message logging, tracing. Um, there was all, you know, some event logging. There was all kinds of rich diagnostic capabilities. Um, um, and, you know, but there was, it was hard to get a really strong um, always on picture of, of the health of your app. You could use perf counters, um, but you couldn't get the um the end to end picture of of uh of a service based app uh without turning on tracing and as soon as you turn tracing on um you got a whole bunch of data and your 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 throughput um definitely would would take a hit um in and so in 40 we've made some improvements uh we've adopted um the uh event tracing for windows uh etw um, this is a um, general purpose, high speed tracing facility that's provided by the operating system. Um, it's the key go forward instrumentation technology for Windows. Awesome. Um, you can configure it. Uh, you can configure ETW sessions in the event viewer or other OS management tools like Logman and so on. Um, it's very, very fast. Um, and uh it uh it provides an improved model for for reasoning about events um so so dubcf is now instrumented using um etw the 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 system.diagnostics and all that of course um uh, uh still works um um but we've also got this etw thing and it and it um points forward uh, to the, uh, th this, uh, feature is going to get even more exciting with the arrival of the, um, Windows Server app fabric. And I know we, you know, you'll probably want to do a show on that at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, got them scheduled already. Yeah, we're already awesome. on it. <laughs> awesome. 
So, uh, uh, yeah, so don't want to, uh, um, you know, delve too much into app fabric. It's, it's a set of technologies for building, scaling out and managing, um, um, web apps and, and, uh, composite apps like service based apps and stuff like that. Um, but I'll, I'll just mention briefly, uh, one of the neat things that it does with respect to, um, to monitoring, which is it's got this, um, uh, event collector service that subscribes to all these ETW traces and it sticks them into um, a monitoring database. So, uh, um, so that you can view uh, the, your essentially the the health profile of your app, um, you know, after it's been running for a while. So you can look at the historical health of your app um, that's been. Um, um, collected with this uh, event collector service. Uh, so, uh, um, in in summary, App Fabric allows you to configure this always-on health monitoring of your services with uh, predefined traces that are emitted through ETW, this very fast uh, tracing infrastructure, and then you can you can actually look at the um, the traces and the health monitoring data um, uh, in uh, IIS Manager. That's that's one of the windows into into App Fabric is through uh, is through uh, some extensions in IIS Manager. And you can actually look at completed calls and um, exceptions and faults. You can even do stuff like um, uh, look at related events. Um, so like let's say you've got like this aggregate service that calls a couple of other services. You can configure the tracing to propagate um, some some correlation IDs across the calls and and you can find, you know, hunt down bottlenecks and stuff like that in your service. It's it's actually really, really interesting. When you have the show with the app fabric guys, make sure that you uh, ask for details about that. Awesome. Sure. You mentioned uh, REST support and uh, this this is some new stuff in WCF. We've talked a little bit about that with other people before, but just uh, briefly, tell us about that. Okay, yeah. So, you know, obviously WCF was designed in the first place really more of an RPC or service-oriented um, model where you, you get a proxy and a stub and you have WSDL that gives you metadata. Um, and then there's this whole camp of REST folks when you've delved into that, so I won't get into it. But, I mean, they're their philosophy is just do it like the web, do it simple. Mm. And um, so there are, there are a growing number of people interested in that. And so rather than try to dictate that, you know, this way is better or that, we really want to provide tools that mm. help programmers do what they want to do, right? So so we've we've been improving since 3.5. We added REST, and then it got better in 3.5 SP1. And then about a year ago, there was this thing called the, the REST Starter Kit. And it was basically yeah. an attempt to an early attempt to get some, some ideas out there in code and let developers get feedback. And um, so we learned a lot from that, and a lot of those best features are being pulled into .NET 4. So, um, you know, I'll just sort of talk through the, the big sure. ones. The help page seems simple, but it's, it's just like when, when you have a service, you know it's running when you hit F5 and you see that help page and you can see the whistle, right? That's almost like yeah. your first line of debugging. So for for uh, REST services to have that, and, and what it does is it's able to read from the contract and automatically generate like a sample message or a XSD schema. So you can actually cut and paste that. And like like in Visual Studio, you have a paste as XML or uh, paste as XML. So it basically auto auto generates a serializable type based on that XML. So it's not the same as add service reference, but it starts to to give a um, you know a help to the developer. Um, it's kind of interesting with REST because kind of by by principle they don't like tools. They want to just just you know cruft up some XML and and shoot it over HTTP. So we really try to to walk a line of what tools would help people, especially the you know people that aren't as familiar with REST, help them consume and and do REST projects without you know violating those REST principles. So so anyway, that help page is a big one. And then the other couple are, are the HTTP caching. So you can declaratively in your config file and by putting attributes, um, control the caching for services. And that's again, huge aspect and sort of scalability of the web. And that just plugs into, uh, ASP.NET caching, right, uh, Kent? Uh, well, this is more like just controlling the client caching. So, you know, with, on the service, you can you can say, okay, here's a timestamp, or here's how long this data is good, and then the browser would just, if you requested more data, 
um, if you called that service again, the, the client side would, before it called, actually check the timestamp and, and not even call the service. You wouldn't even see a, a message go across. Um, or there's also oh. options where, where you can you can put a time step. Uh, they call an e-tag, and you can put it on there and, and then, you know, actually ping the server and say, has this data changed in a nice. very lightweight call? And, and if it hasn't changed, you don't need to regenerate that whole result set and bring it back. Yeah, that's that's a great feature. So that, that's called conditional puts. And, and so conditional puts or conditional gets. And so they're just some helper calls on the server side to make it easy to sort of pull that e-tag out of the header, you know, check and confirm it, and then set a new one if necessary. So it's just it's just helper methods to make it easier for that kind of thing. Excellent. You know, I've cool. left WS Star to the very end because it, it, it just for fun, really, because it's it was the original feature I think of of WCF mm. more than anything was trying to pull all those those different standards and ideas together to largely provide interoperability. But uh, maybe I should open this with a simple question. And you, whoever wants to take it on can take it, which is, does WS Star matter? It's a great question. And, and you know, coupled with the rest that we just talked about, I think it does. Um, I, I think it was important. It was foundational in sort of the vision of WCF. And, um, yeah, you can look at certain pieces of the WS Star protocols and say, oh, we don't need that. Like, you know, atomic transactions, how many people are really doing that, especially over the Internet? You maybe even arguably shouldn't. Um, however, security is very important, and being able to have security at the message level rather than the transport level is very important in, in a lot of scenarios. So, so I, I still see, and I work a lot in this area, I still see a lot of enterprise, you know, developers are interested in WS Star. Um, and, and it's not you know, just about the interoperability story. It's about certain specific services like security. That's right. You know, cause, and I guess that's relative to just simple soap. So like Azimex has simple soap, which is very interoperable. Um, and you can put transport security on that. But once, once sort of the server has received that message, and then if you need to forward it beyond, that message has been decrypted and is sort of out in the open. So there are definitely places where having message level security, meaning I can pull it off the transport, read some headers, and route it to the right place without exposing sensitive data until it gets to the end result. That's that's kind of like one of the core scenarios that WSTAR supports that you won't see that for a while in REST. Don't most people still just use HTTPS, though, and secure the whole dang thing? Well, that's what I'm saying. So, yes, you can use HTTPS to the server. But let's say if, let's say if I have a, a server in my DMZ and I receive a message and then I put it out in the DMZ for security reasons and I want to forward that message to an internal box... Mm. I, now I have that message. I guess I could do HTTP again, yeah. but you start controlling it. Where a lot of architects want to say, we want to know for sure that message isn't decrypted until it gets to the ultimate endpoint that has a certificate and, and knows how to decrypt it. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, because fundamentally, then the router is a man in the middle attack. Yep. And we, That's right. And, you know, we talked about this with Michelle Robustamante ages yep. ago. Uh, that this was a sort of core issue. To me, that was the most compelling part of this entire thing. And it looks like it's the piece that the people are actually using and, and much, a lot of else has just sort of been pushed back. So it, in terms of, w, of WCF4, is there really much to add in the WS star or are we sort of where we need to be? It's, it's not huge. Um, so we already mentioned the WS discovery and part of that was also soap over UDP. So those have been right. added and those, those are additions. Um, the other side is, is, WSI, Web Service Interoperability, is an org because a lot of these specs were written, you know, it's always a negotiation between several vendors, and they're written where there's shoulds and musts, and there's, there's some leeway. So someone can legitimately implement the spec, but our stack isn't interoperable. And so this organization tried to pare those down and, and have really simple versions that just, you know, are going to work out of the box. And so there's a thing called Basic Profile 1.0, and then there's 1.2. And so we've, we've, we have fully tested um, working versions of, of those protocols, as well as one called Basic Secure Profile, which adds some of these security scenarios. So there's been progress in that area. And then the other uh, big progress has just been in the WSDL interop. So there are certain scenarios where, say, with WebSphere or WebLogic, we do things with the WSDL that are they're legal, but maybe it's not the way they looked at it. And so we've been able to, over time, see issues and, and be able to to produce WSDL and, and consume their WSDL in better ways. And it just makes the job, the developer's job a lot easier when he's trying to put two things together. Right. Well, um, that brings us to just about the end of the show. Uh, thanks so much for going over these, uh, this, these great new features and 
and, uh, and improvements in WCF, and I'm looking forward to checking it out. Well, thanks for having us, guys. It's, uh, it is an honor to be on this show. Well, it's an honor to have you. Absolutely. <laughs> thanks. And we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.